Xtox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. And today's episode is sponsored by Gilson. Enjoy the show. Looking for ways to automate your tedious lab tasks? Gilson can help. We automate sample dispensing and transfers so you can walk away and focus on your research. Choose from pre-configured systems or assemble your own to match your application. We blend in with your existing lab workflows so you can avoid reworking your already established procedures. Gilson can even support you with protocol development to speed up your time to automation. Go your own way with our scalable and precise robotic liquid handling systems. Head to go.gilson.com xtalks to learn more or speak to an expert. That's go.gilson.com xtalks. Hello and welcome to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rishi, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com. And this week I'm joined by a very special guest on the show, Dr. Courtney Silverthorne, who is an Associate Vice President at the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health, or FNIH, as well as the Director of the Accelerating Medicines Partnership, or AMP, program, including the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium. The FNIH recently announced that the AMP Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium has selected eight rare diseases for its clinical trial portfolio. We will discuss the details of this with Dr. Silverthorne in this episode. So let's get right into it. Thank you very much for being on the show, Dr. Silverthorne. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. So I just want to start off by asking you, um, could you tell us a bit more about the AMP Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, including when it was launched and what the key goals of the consortium are? Absolutely. So the AMP Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium is part of the larger Accelerate Medicines Partnership Program. Um, this is a very large set of public-private partnerships that date back uh, originally to 2014 as a way for the NIH and the private sector to come together, share resources, share governance, and solve challenges in the pre-competitive space that neither the government or the private sector could solve on their own. Um, the BGTC was the sixth area of AMP programs, and it's actually very unique in that it's the only AMP program that is focused on a therapeutic platform rather than a specific disease or disease area. Mm -hmm. So we launched the BGTC in uh, October of 2021 um, with the goal of making the preclinical and regulatory processes for gene therapies more accessible for the rare disease patient population. Mm -hmm. We have uh, components in the program that are related to research in AAV or adeno-associated virus technology, as well as an end-to-end -end process of manufacturing preclinical testing and clinical trials for the eight diseases that we've just selected. Wonderful. And so can you tell us about the recent announcement about the consortium's new clinical trial port, uh, portfolio, which includes eight rare diseases? And what are those diseases that were selected and how were they chosen? Yeah, absolutely. So the eight rare diseases that were chosen uh, and announced in May of 2022 um, are the result of about an 18-month review and selection process. Um, because the consortium is focused uh, really on the pathway to an IND or investigational new drug application for a rare disease indication, 
um, we were very open to the specific diseases that were included in the clinical trial portfolio because they're essentially uh, proof of concept or test cases that we can provide a more streamlined pathway for the manufacturing processes for an AAV gene therapy, for the preclinical testing that's required to submit an IND application, and for the regulatory templates and submissions themselves. So uh, shortly after the consortium launched, uh, we put out an open call to the patient research clinical communities of the rare disease networks, um, asking them to submit diseases for us to consider for our clinical trial portfolio. We wanted this to be a very accessible process, uh, so we put together a short nomination form, it's about three pages long, uh, that asked the submitters to provide some information about the rare disease or disorder, uh, information about the patient population, uh, how the disease uh, affects that particular patient, um, any work that had been done in that disease previously, whether there had mm -hmm. been uh, animal studies or other preclinical testing uh, already completed, and then some information that would help us uh, enroll patients in a, an eventual clinical trial. So was there already a contact registry for that disease? Uh, was there a patient advocacy group that could help us uh, reach out to patients? Um, from that initial uh, call for nominations, we received 62 for us to mm -hmm. consider. Um, and we had a, a team of subject matter experts that reviewed those 62 disease nominations and selected uh, a short list of 14 candidate diseases. Those 14 diseases were announced in July of 2022, um, and we requested clinical trial proposals for those 14 indications. Mm -hmm. um, from that interim list of 14, uh, we did a review and scoring of the clinical trial proposals and ultimately selected the eight diseases. Um, one of the goals of the consortium is to make the work that we do as broadly applicable to as many diseases and disease spaces mm -hmm. as possible. So we wanted to ultimately land on a portfolio that included different target tissues, different types of diseases, um, different AAV vectors. Right. Um, and so the final portfolio includes um, AAV5, AAV8, and AAV9, um, as well as um, achieving patient diversity across the clinical portfolio. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, a little bit of an interesting uh, discussion for us because sometimes when you have um, these single gene diseases, uh, the patient populations themselves can be pretty uh, similar. Um, and so we didn't necessarily require that uh, an individual disease had to have um, a diverse patient population, but that as we were selecting the full portfolio, that across the totality of the patients that we had diversity. Um, and we've uh, managed to achieve all of those goals uh, with the final selection. So the diseases that we selected, uh, we classified into three different categories. So we have uh, a set of ocular indications or eye disorders. Mm -hmm. um, we have a set of neurological indications. Um, and then we also have a set of what we call systemic indications. So these could be target tissues throughout the body, but things that would be delivered uh, to the entire body in the treatment. So within our uh, ocular, uh, our eye indications, um, we have uh, one indication that is um, a corneal disease, um, so affecting the cornea in the eye, and that's congenital hereditary endothelial dystrophy, or what we call CHED. Um, we also have two retinal indications. Mm -hmm. um, one is a, a form of retinal degeneration that affects a particular gene in the, the retina, and one is a form of a disease called retinitis pigmentosa. And so each of these has a very specific gene that's uh, uh, not functioning properly in that particular mm -hmm. disease and can cause uh, blindness or, or vision uh, 
uh, challenges. In our neurological portfolio, uh, we have three different diseases. Um, one is a, a disease called uh, multiple sulfatase deficiency. Um, this is a disease that affects uh, storage in the lysosomes, which is a specific type of cell within the body. Um, and it produces a very, uh, very rapidly progressing, uh, very challenging disease for these patients. Um, we have a disease uh, called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, um, and again, a specific uh, gene within that subset, um, causing progressive weakness in the body as the disease progresses. Um, and then our third neurological disease is a form of spastic paraplegia um, that ev eventually causes loss of movement in the patient. Um, and then finally, we have two systemic indications. Um, one of these is a form of propionic acidemia. Um, this is a, a disease that affects an enzyme that's produced in the body um, and can create some very uh, uh, life-threatening challenges to the patient um, because they don't have this functioning enzyme. Um, and then the other one is called Morchio-A syndrome, um, which is a skeletal disease causing very short stature, um, uh, deformities in the limbs, um, and can also affect the teeth and the eyes as well. Um, so you can see a very broad set of diseases, very broad set of tissues, um, all very rare diseases. Uh, we've estimated that across the entire portfolio of these eight diseases in the United States, there's a total of maybe a little over 2,000 patients that are affected. Um, so very small patient populations in the, the hundreds, 200s uh, for each disease. Wow. And so, yeah, speaking about the rare disease space, of course, here, um, how do you, from a general overarching perspective, I, I mean, this clinical trial portfolio that um, you brought together, um, focusing on these rare diseases, but just in general in this space, in recent years, how, what kind of changes have you seen? Because if we spoke about rare diseases and drug development, just maybe a a decade or two ago, there wasn't really a lot of incentive. And, uh, you know, for good reason from the pharmaceutical industry perspective, and we all know about all of those things, but now there's definitely, I'm seeing uh, a great push towards developing treatments for rare diseases through initiatives like um, the bespoke uh, consortium here. And so it's it's really wonderful to see. So how, what kind of changes have you seen be, being in this space and at the helm of, of an initiative like this? And where do you see things going in the future? I mean, in terms of the FDA has numerous pathways for rare disease um, you know, indications or applications through different pathways, accelerated pathways and things like that. And we've been seeing a lot of gene therapy approvals in um, the past, just like one or two years for rare diseases, which is really awesome to see. So what is your take on um, the current climate and where you see things going in the future in, in this space? Yeah, the gene therapy space is exploding uh, yeah. in terms of therapies. Um, right now, as of this recording, I think there are two uh, therapies, gene therapies that are approved for rare diseases, um, but the FDA is expecting that number to grow substantially mm -hmm. over the next five to 10 years. Um, I think uh, within the next decade, they're expecting 10 to 15 approvals per year. Wow. Um, so just a lot of growth in this space, but a lot of it is focused towards larger patient populations. Mm -hmm. um, in the United States, a rare disease is uh, defined as less than 200,000 patients. Right. And so some rare diseases can still have some pretty substantial patient populations that could uh, 
be a viable pathway for a commercial entity to undertake through the normal drug development process. Mm -hmm. um, but for these very small patient populations, um, the, the normal processes of randomized con uh, controlled trials, of doing a phase one, a phase two, a phase three, um, they just don't really work as well when you only have 50 or 100 or 200 patients uh, in total in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and so while there are um, pathways within the FDA in terms of uh, orphan drug status, in terms of accelerated approval, there's nothing that's really specifically targeted to gene therapies for rare diseases. And so that was a little bit of the problem that the BGTC was designed to overcome. Um, we have heard uh, from a, a recent survey of uh, industry partners that uh, half of them think that regulatory clarity is something mm. that this field needs more than anything else. Mm. Um, the, the second highest is manufacturing. Um, right. That's a whole different uh, ballgame. Um, but the, we set out to really use the clinical trials in the BGTC to help make a more clear regulatory pathway, mm. particularly for these very small patient populations that maybe only need an IND and a phase one clinical trial to treat mm. every patient in the United States with that particular disease. There have been some isolated success stories of very determined parents who uh, have a child with a rare disease and have set out to fundraise and uh, work with clinicians and work with researchers um, and you know, 10 or 20 or $50 at a time assemble enough funds to create a gene therapy treatment just for their child mm -hmm. um, or maybe a handful of children. It's not something that goes all the way through the FDA approval process, but it's enough to get their child treated. But they have found the process of doing that um, very challenging, um, very unclear, kind of having to mm -hmm. figure out the roadmap along the way on their own, become regulatory experts, become right. manufacturing experts, yeah. become clinical trial experts. and we really wanted to provide a, an opportunity for not just the eight diseases that we will move forward in our clinical trials, but really use that to create a pathway that any gene therapy for a rare disease can follow. Um, developing minimum sets of manufacturing standards so mm -hmm. that you're doing everything that you need to do uh, in order to show that your manufactured product is safe, um, but you're not doing unnecessary testing. Uh, similarly, we are working on sets of preclinical testing standards. Um, what is the minimum set of preclinical tests in an animal model that you need to do to show that something is safe enough to give it to a human being? Right. Um, and it, the gold standard, of course, is um, uh, primate models. Um, primate models are very expensive. And in some cases, they might not be needed. Uh, mm -hmm. A less expensive animal model might be a sufficient substitute, and that can get you to your preclinical testing in a faster and a less expensive way. Um, and so really what we want to make sure is that when these parents are working with nonprofit foundations, when they're fundraising on their own, um, that every dollar that they raise yeah. is, is really being used to do exactly what's needed and nothing more to get into uh, a, a phase one trial. Excellent insights and, uh, you know, just uh, bringing clarity to the clarity that is needed uh, within this space uh, from a regulatory perspective. That's uh, thank you so much for uh, shedding light on that. And of course, since, you know, 80% of rare diseases have a genetic basis, 
um, gene therapy is, of course, at the forefront of treatments for many of these diseases. And so within the gene therapy space, um, what do you uh, see as being the current climate? I, I mean, in the past couple of decades, the whole you know, there's been so many challenges to get gene therapies to develop them so that they're safe and effective in patients. And now we're finally seeing um, so many approvals coming through for rare and other diseases as well. And I know that, uh, so the uh, BGTC is currently focusing on AAV, so adeno-associated uh, vectors as delivery vectors for these gene therapies. Um, are there other, um, you know, vectors and um, under development, say nanoparticles and things like that, or is the focus on AAV and why AAV? And also, where do you see this, the gene therapy space in general uh, going in the future? Yeah, so the BGTC is focused exclusively on AAV gene therapy and even more specifically, AAV gene replacement. Um, so I know okay. that gene editing is a, yeah. a very hot field exactly. of technologies. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to choose a, a very specific pathway that we could repeat over and over mm -hmm. so that others could continue to repeat that over and over again. Um, and so we chose AAV gene therapy uh, because one, it, it's the most used in the field so far. It has the, the most well-tested safety profile, um, but also it offered us the most freedom to operate in a pre-competitive space. Um, so we're using wild type AV vectors, um, you know, no novel capsids, no novel delivery technologies, um, really wanting to ensure that the work that we do is a, as accessible to the general population as yeah. possible. Um, we know that the field is, is developing rapidly, that new technologies are coming forward. Um, and all of those original AMP programs that started back in 2014 have continued or expanded uh, into broader uh, applications. Um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of expectation that the BGTC will continue or expand beyond uh, we're currently structured uh, through 2027. And I think that that could look a couple different ways. Um, it might be additional work in AAV gene therapy. Um, we have uh, some side research within the consortium that is working on a more platform-based process for manufacturing gene therapies. And so that might be the basis of continuing work in AAV gene therapy in a second phase of the BGTC. It could be replicating the work of the BGTC, the preclinical manufacturing regulatory in a different delivery technology, whether that's another viral technology like lentivirus mm -hmm. or a non-viral technology like nanoparticles, lipid nanoparticles, or in gene editing, uh, if that field mm -hmm. develops sufficiently over the next several years. Um, or we could be looking at trying to answer a research or a regulatory question that we can't even anticipate at this mm -hmm. time, but given how fast the field is moving, uh, by the time we get to the end of the consortium in 2027, it could be an entirely different landscape. And that's really exciting to mm -hmm. think about what the possibilities could be there. Absolutely. And so what are the future goals of the BGTC? Um, where do we, uh, where does the consortium go from, from here and uh, what can we expect? Yeah, absolutely. So our next big step is to secure our manufacturing commitments. Mm -hmm. um, so all of the vector product uh, for the eight clinical trials that the BGTC will run 
will be manufactured by either existing BGTC partners or a, a short list of uh, contract manufacturing organizations that we've pre-vetted in terms of their capabilities to meet the needs of the consortium. Um, so that's what we're currently in the process of doing. And here what we're trying to ensure that we do is that we leverage prior work of these organizations as much as possible. So if they've already manufactured a product for a particular AAV type or a particular route of administration. Um, we want to leverage that previous work as reference material as much as possible rather than reinventing the wheel for every clinical trial. Um, we'll also be assembling what we're calling cross-functional teams within the consortium. Um, so previously for the first 18 months of the consortium, we were structured very functionally around manufacturing, around clinical trials. Um, around uh, regulatory aspects. Um, but now that we have our eight diseases selected, we'll actually be putting together teams that draw across the entirety of that subject matter expertise focused on each one of the individual eight diseases. Um, and so these teams will include a representative from the manufacturer who's making the product for that particular disease clinical trial. It will include subject matter experts from uh, the body of the consortium partners, um, the PI of the clinical trial, um, as well as representation from the patient advocates or patient groups themselves, um, so that as we move forward towards the actual clinical trial, we're getting the voice of the patient into our work very early on. We uh, will be doing the manufacturing and the preclinical testing um, according to those consensus protocols that we're developing for the, the, the clinical trial set over about the next year or so. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping to file our IND applications for these, uh, these eight clinical trials in the first half of 2024, um, hoping for a speedy review and approval mm -hmm. of those, um, and then uh, beginning to enroll patients in the clinical trial mid to late 2024. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the criteria that we required for the consideration of the diseases and disorders was that um, a clinical endpoint had to be known um, as well as uh, measurable within about the first 12 to 18 months. And so we would expect that in addition to collecting all the safety data that you would normally collect in a phase one trial, um, that we would be able to have a measurable clinical endpoint uh, pretty much end of 2026, uh, before the end of the consortium in 2027. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Are there any uh, closing thoughts that you'd like to, to share? Yeah, so the message that we're trying to ensure that everyone hears about the work of the consortium is that it's not just about these eight diseases. Yeah. Um, while we hope that we will have eight successful clinical trials, we hope that we will successfully treat 60 to 70 patients in those clinical trials. If that was the only thing that we did, we wouldn't fully consider the consortium a success uh, mm -hmm. because it's really about using those clinical trials to ensure that others have the processes, the directions, the templates, the materials to move their own indications forward. And so beyond just the 60 or 70 patients that we'll have in these clinical trials, we really hope that the BGTC is transformative for hundreds of thousands or potentially even millions of patients in the future. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Silverthorne, for your time today and for, to be on the show. Uh, it was such an insightful conversation and discussion. So thank you so much. And I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the invitation.
All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.